I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. I'm with my friend Charlie Deist, who is not only the technician, he also keeps me on track with occasional questions and timely summarizations. So today we're talking about the mathematics of beauty, which uh, brings me back to the days of the last time I took a math class. Uh, I think it was probably about 10 years ago, and it was not the most pleasant experience. So I feel like I'm you know, back in school, but, but I hope that this will be a little bit more of a, that it will be a different experience than, than all those seemingly useless and impractical uh, uh, math lectures that, that I've never put to use. Um, when we talk about the mathematics of beauty, that's, a, that's something that, you know, beauty we think of as we know it when we see it, but if there's a mathematics underneath it, that seems to imply that maybe we can understand something about how it's ordered. So what, uh, what are we talking about today? Well, first of all, I, I think this will be a little more of a, a little more pleasant of an experience for you. I hope so, at least. Um, and yes, it, it is surprising, I think, to many people that there can be a mathematics of beauty. It, it, beauty is often perceived as something that is uh, subjective, and even, um, of course, we've dealt with that in the past. But um, even for those who acknowledge the objectivity of it, um, there's a resistance to. Uh, the idea that it's something that can be analysed in this way. It's, it's, uh, the, there is this feeling that it is uh, that it draws us into God, it engages the emotions and the passions, which it does do. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't analyse it. And of course, at the heart of this is the, is the assumption that we have um, in response to the world around us uh, that, that it exists and uh, that our senses and our perceptions are not simply individual um, illusory experiences, that uh, the world exists and that I am perceiving a reality that's outside of me. So in other words, when I look at the, the cosmos, look at creation, um, it is really there. Now, perhaps my perceptions can be imperfect in some way or slightly distorted but we're assuming that there is a reality out there uh, that might sound like a statement of the of the obvious after all most people live their lives according to, to that assumption um, no one would set foot on the golden gate bridge or drive across it if they doubted that it was really there but the strange thing is that once you get into philosophy classes um, people start to doubt everything and go and just go against common sense. Um, so uh, I'm sort of siding with common sense and the way that even those philosophers who uh, espouse philosophies that uh, doubt the existence of what, what we see and hear and touch, um, they don't, I, I would contend that they don't live their lives on that basis, otherwise they just wouldn't be able to do anything. They'd, they'd be doubting Every, everything they saw and everything around them. Hmm. So, with that said, what we then look for is a consensus on what is beautiful so that we can then, that's the greatest chance we have of deciding that there is something worth analysing about it. If, if everybody has a totally different opinion on what is beautiful around them, then we, can't, we have less chance of being sure what, that, that it is beautiful. 
Fortunately, there are things for which there are there is a consensus. Um, most people look at the natural world, for example, and would say it is beautiful. Um, and so I would say, therefore, that indicates there's a pretty good chance that um, there is a, a natural world and it is beautiful. I rely on, uh, again, the common sense uh, that people have on, on things. Similarly, um, musical harmony. Um, we don't all have the same taste in music, uh, but there is a, a large overlap, a large degree of consensus of what combinations of notes sound good together. Uh, so, for example, the historically, uh, the early ones were the perfect fourth, the perfect fifth, and the octave, for example. So those are combinations of two notes. Um, most people, when they hear those notes together, uh, hear a connection. And when they hear other intervals, they hear something that is discordant. Um, and that's, that's, that crosses cultures, that crosses time. Um, now, there are additional combinations of notes that um, can be perceived, and there, are, there is some variation in culture. So the, the, uh, the sort of things that many people today view as harmonious and enjoyable in music that that range of combinations is much wider than it used to be. Hmm. Um, and there are various reasons for that. Some it can just be that our perceptions are different because of the effects of culture. I think also it's the fact that musical instruments have improved and the, the degree to which we can be precise in producing notes hmm. has, has increased. But nevertheless, um, within that, there are perceptions that connect us to the ancient Greeks. We still hear the octave, a middle C and then the C higher sounds like the same note to us just as it did to the ancient Greeks. Um, and so there's a point of consensus that we can then start to look mathematically at uh, what connects those notes together. We can look at the cosmos and start to, to look at the, the view of, of it as a whole. Remember that when we perceive beauty, what we perceive, um, what we're looking at is the broad horizon. We're looking at the interconnections of things, the relations of parts to others, and we're detecting a pattern. Mm -hmm. So this comes back to this um, observation of what, what I called last week the emergent order. When we look at the whole, we start to see connections between things which will, aren't always apparent when we're burying down into the detail. Um, so when we look at the, the wide horizon, we can see patterns in uh, what exists and uh, we can start to say, well, maybe these, some of these relationships are the basis uh, for beauty. Um, another common point is uh, mankind, uh, although this was one that might be disputed today, funnily enough, but it was always assumed that man is the pinnacle of creation and that objectively we know that he is the, the most beautiful part of that creation. Um, and so people then start to look at uh, the proportions of man. Now, all people are different, and those proportions vary, but nevertheless, you can look at the patterns that exist and say, well, as I look across many, many people, 
the, the, what I observe seems to tend towards these ideals. And so going back to the ancient Greeks, for example, there's the famous uh, canon of proportion that it was supposed to be the basis for their statues, uh, their sculptures. It's called the Polyclitus Canon. Um, it's been lost, um, and people have, uh, suggest, have made suggestions for what it is, but we know that they had one. Um, and then um, other people, such as Augustine and Boethius, have come up with suggestions for what uh, could be a basic set of proportions for the human person. Um, even illustrators today tend to have certain formulae for you know, what is the standard person, how many heads do you, um, do you have, uh, how many heads high is a person, so typically it's one to seven, and then if people want to stylize their work, they would change it, one to eight would be a small head, but it's something that people might do deliberately to introduce an element of style. And so these sort of analyses um, point to uh, a, a mathematics of, of beauty. Um, and then finally, uh, there are other sources, but the world of mathematics itself, um, people then started to ask, well, if we can analyze the, these patterns mathematically and see ratios and proportions which seem to characterize what we find beautiful, um, does that say something about just the world of number in itself? That um, it fascinated um, the ancient Greeks and early thinkers that mathematics is this abstract world of ideals that we can we can conceive of the idea of three plus four, for example, as numbers. We don't always have to be counting uh, three apples and four apples. When, you, when people are introduced to mathematics, um, you, you, you are counting things to, with, with children. And so you line up three apples, and then you line up four apples, and you say, how many do we have? And you say, seven apples. Then, at some point, we are able to abstract the idea of three and the idea of four, and it exists as an idea in our mind, and... We, and we can add it up to make seven, and then we can apply it uh, to other things. So not only can we add up apples, we can add up pears and tangerines hmm. and anything else. And that, therefore, um, allows for certain things to happen. One is that if I can describe the mathematics of musical harmony, for example, um, in uh, mathematically, then um, what I can do is I can use the mathematical formulas I use to, to describe musical harmony, um, and then I can uh, apply it to other things. So I can make the ratio of the dimensions of a building correspond to the same um, ratios that describe the lengths of string that produce notes that are in harmony. And so mathematics can be abstracted from something that we observed, conceived in the abstract in our minds, and then applied by us to other things that we're creating. 
This means, therefore, that it can contribute to the beauty of the culture and potentially anything can be designed according to the principles of the beauty of man, the beauty of music, or the beauty of the cosmos. Hmm. Um, and in fact, the, the, the word music, historically, didn't just mean what we think of it today. Um, they would refer to that as instrumental music. Um, but music really was the mathematics of harmony, the mathematics hmm. of beauty. And so they would talk about uh, cosmic music and uh, the music of man, um, human music. Um, and we, we we're aware, many people will be aware of the phrase, the music of the spheres. Well, that's what they're referring to, the, the pattern of order and harmony that seems to govern the motion of the planets around us. Hmm. So th there's a lot to unpack there. And uh, first, I just want to get to understand a little bit better this worldview that you're describing, which is not necessarily the prevailing worldview today, that reality is something real out there, would you say, first of all, just a, a quick question, is it, are we talking about it as an objective reality as opposed to something that is, you know, where, where people can create their own meaning or create, you know, that, that their perception of it? I guess that without getting too deep into the philosophical weeds, what is the modern line of thinking that tries to deny that the world out there is something real that can be analyzed using mathematical principles that are verified you know, in, in the, the roots of, of every human mind? Right. Well, what I first thing I'd say is that I think modern thinking is confused because it, it's, it's fractured and people think different things. But if you were to characterize the two attitudes, <clears throat> one would the, 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 the phrase that's often used to characterize the modern outlook comes from René Descartes and it's I think therefore I am so it identifies existence as what I think um, and it, it really doesn't even the body is just something that is an, um, an ex, really is more connected to the world around me which might simply be um, an illusion. All I know for certain is that I think, and, I, and because I think, I believe I exist, but really the essence of what I am are my thoughts. The other, uh, and that's often called a radical skepticism, you doubt everything. Um, and so you look at the world around you, you say, well, it might exist, it might not, but I, I, I can't be sure. I might just be seeing these things as images in my mind. They might just be thoughts. Mm. Um, the other way of looking at it would be characterised, uh, I, I heard it connected to St Thomas, but really it, it, St Thomas Aquinas, but it, it's true of um, all traditional Christian uh, philosophy, and that's, um, it's, I, I am, therefore I think. Mm. Um, and really... We can't prove one or the other directly. These are axiomatic. In other words, they are assumptions that you take um, arbitrarily. That means that I don't mean that it's unthinking or just random, but basically you've just got to start somewhere and you start with a basis for approaching things that seems consistent with uh, the way you live. Now, I would contend that while many philosophers go down the Descartes route, um, and perceive of everything that 
we see around us um, potentially as just illusion, that's not how people live their lives. Mm -hmm. The St. Thomas is in accordance with common sense. Um, yeah. And, uh, but those are the, uh, the key things. And in fact, uh, I think it was, I recently attended these lectures. I'm not a great scholar of modern philosophy. And in fact, I, um, even when I've tried in the past, I found it so difficult and bore, dull to read and contrary to what I believe that I can't uh, per persevere with it. But I, I attended some lectures that were summarizing much of modern uh, philosophy and apparently this uh, um, idea that was sometimes called the crisis of being. Hmm. Um, Heidegger, um, who's a 20th century philosopher, said this is the big problem in modern philosophy is that we don't start with that assumption of, it, of existence. The um, assumption of existence, okay. Yeah. And if we go back to ancient Greece, for one thing in this podcast, we haven't talked all that much about uh, ancient Greece and people might be wondering, you know, what, what does Greece have to do with the discussion of beauty and culture and faith? Um, I think it was uh, one of the church fathers, Tertullian, who asked the question, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And there is kind of this question, both the, the ancient, uh, you know, the, the people of, of ancient Israel and the people of ancient Greece seem to be somehow special in their outlook, in their worldview. You have the, you know, the great philosophers coming from Greece, and then you have the line of prophets leading up to Jesus Christ in, uh, in Israel. But there are two sort of different approaches, it seems like, for talking about the ultimate reality of talking about existence what what was either missing from Greece or what does Greece have to contribute to our understanding as Christians of about this ultimate reality right so um, the uh, of course Greece ancient Greece was when we talk about it not all ancient Greeks thought in the same way it was a society that had people who thought differently just as ours, as ours does today. But um, the great contribution that ancient Greek philosophy made was that um, it uh, was one of looking at the world around us and um, analysing it with reason. Um, and I think the greatest of these, most people would say, would be Aristotle. Um, and, uh, of course, people will... will be aware of Socrates and Plato. These three sort of go together. Um, but what they did was really deduce through reason so much of what was revealed uh, by God directly through scriptures. So the, what, uh, what you have is revelation, uh, which is God telling us directly, whether it's through the prophets, through scriptures, and ultimately in the person of Christ, um, many things which we could deduce without that just by looking at the world around us. Um, it takes very clever people um, to do that, and, and some of these ancient Greeks were extremely clever. And then um, the early Christian thinkers recognized, because they were coming out of that world anyway, they recognized that much of what the Greeks did was consistent with Christianity. What Christianity added to this 
was revelation, those aspects that could not be deduced, um, the, the mysteries of the faith, they're called, those things that can't be deduced by reason. Um, and the church fathers married these two together, and so, um, it's so reason is often described as faith-seeking understanding, and the ancient Greeks um, gave some of that understanding, but also provide the, 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 the method of discourse, if you like, the, the way of looking at things that allowed the tools by which that could be developed even beyond them. So the most famous person in the Catholic world who um, took the wisdom of the ancient Greeks and integrated it with the, uh, with the Gospels, there are many, many great figures, some, you know, Saint Augustine comes to mind, or some of the great thinkers of the Eastern Church, but Saint Thomas Aquinas is one figure that Catholics, Roman Catholics would always say, um, manage this uh, integration in, in uh, perhaps the most complete way yet. Mm. Okay, so if we were to look at prior to Aquinas within the either uh, early Christian tradition or going back to, uh, just going straight back to scripture, where do we find revelations about the mathematics of beauty in scripture? <laughs> Um, well, there is there are scriptural sources, and and so and a great person to read about this is Augustine. Actually, so he doesn't present. A, there's no book called the Mathematics of Scripture, but all of his commentaries on Scripture, for example, refer to number a great deal. And so, if I can just give one little example, um, God made the world in six days and then rested on the seventh. And um, within the world of mathematics, the abstract world of mathematics, six is, is known as a perfect number. Now, what, what a perfect number is, is all the numbers that can go into six, one perfectly, one and two and three, when you add them up, they add up to six. So one plus two plus three equals six, uh, 1 times 2 times 3 equals 6. 6 is a perfect number. The next perfect number is 28, and the next one is 100 and something. There are very few of them. Um, so, Augustine says that God made the world and it was good, it was perfect, and he made it in six days uh, because 6 is a perfect number. And he says 6 is not a perfect number because the world God made the world in six days. He made the world in six days because six is a perfect number. In other words, even God has to work within the order of things. Hmm. Um, and then he rested. And so seven is the, the number of the, of the covenant. Hmm. Um, and we see that pattern in our daily living. So it's natural to us to live a cycle of seven days. People have tried to check, and we see, first of all, that seven days works in other cultures. Um, and after the French Revolution, they tried to introduce a 10-day um, cycle. Um, and uh, they found that it just didn't work. It didn't fit the, the, the natural human rhythm of life. Um, then we have what's called the eighth day. So... Uh, Christ is interpreted as being the, the, the new covenant. He brought in 
the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, brought in the what's called the eighth day of creation, which is the perfection of, through him is the perfection of all things. <clears throat> and so Sunday is simultaneously the eighth day of the last week and the first day of the next. And so we can think of this not so much as a linear progression, but a helical progression, where we're going round in a circle of seven, and then on the eighth, we not only move forward, but we move up, we move into a new dimension. And so what this does, rather than just being a self-enclosed circle, it creates a corkscrew that we move up and along. Um, and Sunday has the same character uh, on one day as it did the, the day before. But Sunday is intrinsically different from Monday and Tuesday. And we know this in sacred time because we mark Friday as a special day. Mm. Wednesday and Friday traditionally would be fast days, for example, because they they have special characters. They're not just arbitrary 24 hours. Um, and then, here's the amazing thing, that you, you go around this cycle of seven plus one, and the eighth is somehow connected to the last and the, the ushering in the new one. Then we look at the beauty of music, and you find that in the musical scale, the one that is natural in, in to, uh, if you want harmonies, you have eight notes. Hmm. And, um, and here is the thing that I find amazing, is that if I, I'm going to sing a little bit now, but if I sing eight notes, sing a scale, da 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 that's, those are octaves. Mm -hmm. And if you play them on the piano, they sound the same. They have the same character. One is higher than the other, and we've gone up um, a, a tone or a semitone each time to create that scale. But somehow we've ended up that we're still a higher pitch but we kind of ended up somehow back where we were. Mm. And it's as though the musical scale mirrors that progression through time that is natural to man. Mm. And so they would see that and say, ah, this, can, this, is, this is music in, of the spheres um, and music and instrumental music. Um, and why is it of the spheres? Well, the traditional, the idealized uh, lunar month uh, would be 28 days. 28, remember, is the next right, perfect number. number. It's four sevens of 28, um, and the moon waxes and wanes. And uh, it's idealized that they would be aware that months uh, changed in, um, in length and that sometimes um, you didn't get exactly 12 months in the year. You had to sort of add these fudge factors. Hmm. But the question they're asking is not what is it but what is the perfection that it points to hmm. um, because they knew it. we live in a fallen world and our perceptions are flawed so they're always looking for the idealized form and then they would create that in the work they did um, and so you see this pattern of seven plus one in in the liturgy um, saint benedict of nursia said in his rule um, quoting the psalmist, seven times a day I will pray, praise you, O Lord, pray to you, O Lord, and then I will rise uh, at midnight to praise you. Mm. And so there is that pattern of seven plus one in the daily uh, rhythm of worship that the church participates in. Even though I don't, might not do all of those offices, 
when I participate in some of them, I'm contributing to the mystical body of Christ as a whole, um, praying in that rhythm. Hmm. And the significance of seven is that, um, of, of seven repetitions, is that it's um, seen as representing uh, perfection, a continuous practice. So how can we pray continuously? We can't because sometimes I'm praying but I'm, I'm in time and space, and sometimes I'm doing work here, sometimes I'm thinking about I need a cup of coffee. Um, but if I repeat it seven times, or I'm part of the church which repeats it seven times, as we all contribute to the prayers of the church, um, then that constitutes continuous prayer, uh, which is the ideal we're asked to live up to. Uh, that's what St. Paul exhorted us to do. Um, and also, again, the psalmist quoting the psalmist. So, um, the word of God is perfect, more perfect than silver, seven times refined. In the words, perfectly refined. Mm -hmm. And so these patterns work their way through. Um, one other example, just before, is that also there are dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant, for example. Um, and some of these are do seem obscure and um, don't necessarily tie in with this pattern of working across man and, uh, uh, and the cosmos and music. Uh, but some of them do. And St. Augustine, for example, talks about the dimensions of the Ark, um, Noah's Ark. Um, and I forget, and he quotes them, and I forget precisely what they are. But he says these correspond to the dimension, the, the, the natural dimensions of man. Um, and this is deliberate because this is the ark that saves man and it points ultimately to the perfect man who is Christ. So again, it wouldn't worry them that, um, that uh, people were different. The question that the ancients would say, well, what is the perfection, the human perfection that all of our, this variety points to? And they would see that as being... Um, embodied within the person of Christ. Okay. Uh, so how, who, who were the first people to actually derive some of these things in music and elsewhere? Was that, was that ancient Greece? Yes. Well, Plato um, describes it um, in his work, and he, he uh, attributes it to Pythagoras, who lived about 100 years before, so the Pythagoreans believed in this, this almost sort of mystical properties of number. Um, and uh, so he says Pythagoras. Um, Aristotle refers to it. He was clearly aware of that um, uh, in his work, even down to when he talks about arithmetic proportion and geometric proportion in the way he uh, talks about ethics, for example, in his Nicomachean Ethics. He uses these phrases. And he's... Not using them lightly doesn't mean that just generally one thing is proportioned or in relation to another. He uses precise terms, an arithmetic proportion, a geometric proportion. And these are the mathematical formula that, that you, from which you can generate series of numbers. Hmm. Um, and then the, the figures that brought it into the Christian world and said, actually, I think, th 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 who felt that these ideas of the beauty of cosmos, of the cosmos could be principles by which we govern our pattern of life and our culture and, and are reflected in the pattern of our worship in the liturgy. 
And so um, we're first of all Saint Augustine and then uh, a figure called Boethius who lived in the 6th century. Um, and uh, Benedict XVI refers to them, uh, refers to Augustine particularly um, in his book The Spirit of the Liturgy and talks about how he is the inheritor, if you like, of the tradition of Pythagoras. Um, now, Boethius is a great source because he has two extant books, one called uh, De Arithmetica, about arithmetic, and one called De Musica, about music. Um, and uh, he, is, he describes these uh, proportional relationships. And in his book on arithmetic, he derives 10 proportions, um, 10 uh, mathematical formula which relate magnitudes to each other um, and he says that he gets he, he says that he gets them from Plato from Aristotle and other great thinkers um, and he says there are 10 because 10 is the perfect number we, we 10 has this special significance for us because we have 10 toes and 10 fingers um, and it's the, uh, seen as a sort of basic unit in counting so he says that even the number of formula that you have is in itself perfect because mm. there are there are ten of them, um, and these from these you can calculate the musical scale. You can uh, derive the proportions of man in certain ways, um, and these were the basis then for architectural design for centuries, uh, right up to about 1900. Um, one thing that isn't there which might interest people, is the, uh, the golden section. When I talk about this, a lot of people ask me about, ask me if I'm referring to, that it's sometimes called the golden mean or the golden section, and it, people believe that the, the Egyptian pyramids contain it, um, and it's a mathematical relationship which does appear in uh, Euclid's geometry, um, but I can't find any evidence, that it, real evidence, that, I, that convinces me anyway, that it was ever actually used as a proportion of beauty in art or architecture or music. Hmm. Um, this is a modern theory that uh, dates from about the uh, end of the 19th century, something like that. Uh, Leonardo constructed it and he illustrated a book on number and proportion and geometry uh, and did an illustration that incorporated it. But again, we don't actually have evidence that he used it in his own art as mm. a principle of beauty. I, I believe that it's a red herring, um, but I, I might be wrong. Meaning maybe there, there's not as much of a profound relationship between the ratio and beauty or that it I think that, uh, it's, first of all, it isn't a, a traditional principle of beauty. Um, <clears throat> it, it was understood, but it was seen as an anomaly because it's an imperfect. It's something that can't be described mathematically. It okay. can be constructed geometrically. And the ancients were suspicious of that. Hmm. Um, and so they would not think of it as beautiful. Uh, they think of it as something else. But what about the examples like the nautilus shell or sunflower, uh, fla the, the, the arrangement of the seeds in the sunflower? You can see that it's got this kind of 
twist to it where it's only yeah. possible because that's how I was taught it at least. That yes. it shows up in nature everywhere. And the helix so. of the cos of the galaxies in the cosmos and this sort of thing. And it's and also people would point to the the ratio of the, um, the segments of the fingers, for example. Yeah. Or the eyes to the bridge of the nose. Yes. Um, well, first of all, the the degree of margin the margin for error in fitting those is huge. Um, so um, it doesn't fit precise. None of these fit precisely. They're squeezing them into a box they want to fit them into. Secondly, um, the, the mathematics which describes those um, natural um, proportions, um, it has been suggested, relates to the Fibonacci series. Mm. The Fibonacci series was developed by this Italian Fibonacci in the Middle Ages, I want to say uh, 12th century, I'm not sure precisely. Um, and this is a series which is developed by adding numbers. So you start with naught and then one, and then you add the, the last zero. number. Yes, one plus zero equals, equals one, one. Two. One plus three, one equals two. One plus five, two equals three. Exactly. Eight, 13. Yeah. And so on. Okay. Huh. Now, as, you, as, that, as that series goes on to infinity, it approaches the, the golden section. The, the, the ratio of adjacent numbers approaches the golden section. Hmm. Um, however, there's a couple of things to say about this. Um, that series was, was not invented by Fibonacci. It's one of the fundamental series that's listed by um, Boethius. Hmm. He called it the fourth of four. Um, he, he wasn't... You know, it was, he didn't call it Fibonacci series because Fibonacci hadn't existed at that time. So it, the ancient Greeks were aware of that series. Secondly, when they constructed things out of it, they were interested not in the correspondence, the, the end of the series. They were interested in the beginning. One, two, three, five, eight. Um, and so they would say that is the ideal that it, it moves towards. Now, the 358, we do see. Mm -hmm. um, now, that, that can be constructed much more precisely um, and um, has connections to the human person. The 358 um, is uh, one of the human proportions. And uh, if you look at a crucifixion, for example, you see the five wounds of Christ, you see the three points of the cross in this halo, and if you add three and five, you get eight, and Christ is the, the eighth day. Hmm. Um, so you have that symbolism of Christ contained within it. And the ancients would be much more inclined to look at that and say this is the perfection um, that is there. Even if it is true, that we see the golden section in the world around us. And I think people are starting to dispute that now. I think people were looking for what they wanted to see. Um, but even if that is true, uh, the ancients wouldn't be saying, wouldn't be asking the question, what corresponds to the world as it is? They would be looking to the idealized one, the, the world as it will be when redeemed, the perfection that all of this points to uh, in the new Jerusalem, if you like. And they would say that it's much more likely to be present in these whole numbers and proportions than this um, 
very difficult to describe proportion of the golden section. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that, that kind of begins to answer a question that I was going to ask, which was uh, about what in this discussion of the mathematics of beauty um, beyond the question of how we can make the world more beautiful, um, what are the relationships specifically to um, to the, the the Christian understanding of revelation? And so you did you did kind of address that. Um, maybe we can turn to this question of the patterns of beauty and how beauty can emerge out of something that that is uh, you know maybe at a certain level seems random but if you if you zoom out then what emerges out of it is is beautiful yes and and so um this is the emergent order and so th the thing that i would say is that scientists for example natural scientists the, the modern understanding of the word science looks at the the cosmos as well looks at the natural world and analyzes it mathematically mm -hmm. um, what science tends to do is 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 break it up into parts and look at smaller and smaller parts in its analysis. Now that's great, it's very helpful, it's good to know all about the detail, um, but at some point, if you want to, you've got to put it all back together again, if you want to be able to understand the whole. And the behaviour of the whole is not necessarily a strict um, straightforward sum of the parts. Once they start to inter, once you put them together again, they interrelate, and there is they're in relation with each other, and then they behave differently than they do separately. And so this this synthesis or this analysis of the whole um, is very important. Um, now, I think one thing that is is worth talking about. Um, I, I'm not going to go into all the numbers. Um, anyone who's interested in seeing what these proportions look like um, can read my book, The Way of Beauty, and I go into quite a lot of detail there. But there are certain things that we see in traditional design which characterise it, and once you know what to look for, you'll instantly see the difference. Hmm. So the, the first thing is the definition of proportion is a consonant relationship between two ratios. In other words, you, it's, it's, a ra it's a relationship between relationships. So what you have is a minimum of three objects which are different, three magnitudes. The first relates to the second as the second relates to the third. So imagine three stories in a building where the bottom one is greatest, the next one the middle one is slightly smaller, and the top one is smaller still. Mm -hmm. This is the same as the pattern of beauty that you get in a chord, a musical chord. Even modern musical theory, um, which w would not um, accept probably um, a lot of the what I've just said, they wouldn't be interested in that, and the, the, the roots for it or any of the theology behind it, um, they acknowledge that there is a consensus on what people hear and that on the whole, um, a chord for its perfection needs three notes. That even though an interval, two notes together, can sound good, uh, it's consonant, it sounds good together, um, we instinctively 
want to know, want a third note, and mm. it feels whole and complete once we've got three notes. That's why a chord is 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 uh, described with three notes. And uh, the, the, what the music what the music theorist theorist would say is, if you've got two notes that sound good together, it you, you, we don't know whether it's part of a major chord or a minor chord, and so we're we're sort of get, reaching for for something which isn't there until we give it give it gives we get it now uh, composers make use of that they create a, um, a certain tension and uh, anticipation by maybe pointing to, towards one way or the other before finally giving us that major chord or minor chord but the point is that it's a natural human response to want three things together yeah and and so the 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 buildings that you see, if you look at, I'm, I'm going to put on the uh, on the website, uh, the Way of Beauty for those who have access to it, a Georgian house that has three stories, and you see very clearly the three are different. Yeah, um, and that's the pattern. Of course, not all houses could have three stories. Sometimes they'd have two, or sometimes they'd have more. But you see the um, relationships between different sized objects, which mirrors the beauty of music. How absurd it would be to have an orchestra where all the instruments are identical and the piece they play is every, every instrument playing the same note over and over again. Now, it would sound okay because each, one would be the, each note would be the same. Um, it would just sound like one long continuous note. But that is not beauty, that is not harmony, that is not proportion. You've got to have different things in relation to each other. So an orchestra has uh, different pitches, different instruments, playing different musical lines, and they're worked out to be in relation to each other at any instant so that it produces a beautiful effect. Now, that absurd picture of the orchestra with all the notes the same and all the instruments the same is the basis for modern architecture. If you look at a modern office block or a modern building, all the stories are identical. Every single floor, every single window. Mm. It's the window size very often that they, the architect uses to um, speak of the beauty, if you like, because we tend to notice it. But there are other ways too. Um, but they're all identical. And the main reason that uh, I suggest that many people... Uh, find the modern city so soul-destroying. Yeah. Yes. Um, and the tourists go to the old buildings in the centre of the towns of Europe, not to the, 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 the industrial estate on the outskirts or the, yeah. the, ha the, the, the housing projects. Um, there's, there's, there's many reasons for that, um, and it isn't just the mathematics. There are other aspects of design and other things to think about, of course. But... So much of this is um, is the fact that they've abandoned this traditional design, um, and for the Christian, of course, this beauty of three—it's um, very difficult not to make that connection with the beauty of God, which is uh, is a single God, but three persons, three distinct persons within it, in perfect relation with each other. And when we're talking about wills and hearts and minds in relation, um, we're talking about love. And so the perfect harmony uh, for the human person is the harmony of, of loving beings. And it's 
uh, it's in, in perfection within God himself mm. um, and so th- 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 it's, it's difficult not to see that this is being derived from the beauty of God it's no accident that the, the move to, to reject this traditional harmony and proportion comes from people who were very often um, uh, against the Christian faith uh-huh. Um, and it's certainly against tradition, the Enlightenment thinkers, uh, and within the, the movements of art and architecture and music, especially around the end of the 19th century, you get the, the Bauhaus in architecture, people like Schoenberg in music, which just sounds like random nonsense to me, um, and then Picasso and people like that in art, who knew that they were rejecting tradition and therefore deliberately rejected all these ideas of design and proportion. Now, since this is a podcast, we'll have to insert a little bit of Schoenberg here. People (laughs) uh, who are listening won't be able to see the images unless they go to the Way of Beauty uh, blog, but we we can pull a little clip of that. And I I was at a a concert that had a few Schoenberg pieces uh, recently, and those were... uh, inaccessible to me to say the least if, if not outright ugly uh, yeah the, the Bauhaus in architecture that I think of being kind of it's a modern art style what does that look like yes it uh, well they based it on clean lines um, a lot of uh, I really I would say modern architecture even sized windows mm-hmm. and you start to get this um, ethos of u- utilitarianism beauty is mm-hmm. superfluous it's got you only design in according to its use. I remember we discussed this in the past to say, well, that's a diminished sense of utility. Right. Beauty does have a use. It's, mm. it's, it, 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 it speaks of the divine inspiration and, our, um, and that all that we do, however mundane, is in harmony with the, uh, the Christian life. Yeah. And so you can't separate beauty from it. But um, yeah, so it, it, Bauhaus is the beginning of modern architecture, I, I would say. Yeah. Now, I could see someone taking this uh, line of thinking in the direction of a critique of late postmodern capitalism or uh, you know, saying that the, the demands of uniformity in architecture uh, give us, or, I, or the uh, demands to build things cheaper and more efficiently dictate the, the uniformity in, in you know, window panes or something like that. It's maybe cheaper and easier to build something like the, the three-story building where all of the floors are the exact same height. Um, what do you think are the incentives for someone to build something more beautiful in, in the modern world if, if you're competing with companies that are building offices for right. cheaper? Or- well, first of all, um, I don't think it's true to say that that is the sole driving factor. A, a huge amount of money is wasted on very expensive modern buildings that, that are shaped like cigars, for example. And corporations spend money... Salesforce it, Tower, is that yeah. an example? <laughs> it might well be, yeah. Um, but just think of what... Corporations spend huge amounts of money on marble interiors, you know, expensive boardrooms that... They want, they, they're as prone to ostentatious display as anyone else. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's true to say that they actually follow that all the time. I just think they're misguided. Um, 
<coughs> very often in the design principle. <coughs> but anyway, I would say that if you're interested in the human factor and um, in any way believe that a, a business or um, a corporation will work better as a community with people working in harmony and people being happier if, and that, that ultimately that will translate itself to a more profitable company because mm -hmm. people, as provided the end is good, uh, which as a profitable company there's no reason to believe it won't be um, as long as what it's doing isn't intrinsically bad. I would say that it would pay off, that it, it, it'd be very difficult to prove it, but I'd make a strong argument to say that all of these factors contribute to um, a happy, unified community, which is more likely to work for you better, greater stability, less turnover of staff, for example. Yeah. These sort of intangibles. Um, and I would make the argument that beauty contributes to this. Well, I hope that some of the people responsible for making those decisions are listening. <laughs> uh, anything else about architecture, buildings, music? I, I do want to kind of come back to the cosmos for a second because there were two ideas. One is that uh, it's ordered, but then the other idea is that it's not precisely ordered. There's just a little bit of uh, a deviation, or if you look at like a planetary orbit, there's just this slight kind yeah. of imperfection that always gives a variation. So we have seasons, for example, because yes. the, the orbit of Earth is not a perfect circle. Yeah. What do you think you know, that Plato, I, I think of his philosophy as being the realm of ideal types and, you know, perfect shapes, uh, perfect concepts, the number apart from the apples that you're counting. But reality, I think, gets a lot of its beauty from these subtle imperfections. I uh, remember there was a movie about robots probably 15 years ago where they were trying to make as human-looking a robot as possible, and the artist behind the robot said that the key to perfection is imperfection. Uh, <laughs> um, well, what I would say is, first of all, there are two things at play here. One is that um, the world around us is not perfect is because it's, it's fallen, and so there are imperfections which are bad. The other side of it is that um, the order, God's order is more complex than any human being can ever hope to describe. And so... Much of these things that will be described as imperfections or departures from the idealized description are not imperfections. They're just aspects that, cannot, that we cannot describe mathematically and perhaps can only discern or appreciate intuitively at some sort of deeper level. We can respond to them um, and we can't, we're, we can't actually precisely and mathematically account for them. Um, and this was recognized too. So there are imperfections which are not really imperfections. They're complexities that we can't describe perfectly. But there are imperfections that are bad as well. What we want are the former. And so it's the, that's where the judgment of the artist and the creator comes in. They do deviate. They do, you, you add little uh, imperfections. And, and the, the common story, of course, is of the um, monk illuminating the manuscript, deliberately introducing um, deviations from a perfectly symmetrical display. 
Um, apparently, they did the same in in carpets in uh, you know, the Middle Eastern uh, carpets. As the Persian rug, for example, would be perfectly geometrical, but with little deviations. Um, and that those are really there to point to the uh, the perfection that only God can describe. Um, and so that sort of imperfection is really a, a, an indication of a greater perfection that is beyond um, a certain limited form of description when we try to describe things simply mathematically. Um, mathematics of beauty, it, it's like composition in music. We could know all the rules of harmony and counterpoint and all of that and, and understand perfectly how to compose music technically but that doesn't make me a composer I still have to have that sense of how to put it together in accordance with that and that comes from inspiration hmm. <clears throat> and even then there are those controlled deviations aren't they which allow us then to um, enhance beauty by contrast and uh, designers often do that. They deliberately introduce things which are ugly um, so as to, when, it's, when they're resolved, the contrast with what is beautiful is enhanced. So in, the, in a perfect world, we would um, appreciate things simply for their beauty, but we tend to measure things by comparison. Hmm. And so if you produce something which is, we know is less beautiful, to compare it with, our perception is of the enhanced beauty of the first one. Hmm. And so these things are used as well. They're all little tricks that are used to, to accommodate the psychology of man. Sacred geometry is a term that I've heard thrown around a lot. And one kind of cultural observation that I'm thinking about is here in the, in the Bay Area with the the kind of remnants of the counterculture movement, there is a lot of this sort of psychedelic inspired art that maybe draws on some of these ideas of sacred geometry. And I think it, it a lot of times it, it has, um, an, it can be interesting to look at, but it, it doesn't give me the sense of, it doesn't really elevate my spirit. It, it almost speaks to a, a, a realm that that seems sinister and, and chaotic or detached from anything of, of real human value. Related to that, I wanted to know if you have any thoughts on uh, the cross specifically and how that plays into the mathematics of beauty or, or being a form of sacred geometry in a way or symbolically speaking to... Well, <clears throat> the, I, the cross particular not, not the cross, I don't know about that, but I mentioned about the Christ, Christ on the cross, mm. so you have the 358. Um, but what I would say is that, um, first of all, there are disagreements over what those numerical relationships are. I, mean, I mentioned the golden section. So design for in, in websites, for example, if you're taught design in a modern design class, I think that what they teach you is the golden section and what they call binary, which is basically squares, so everything the same. Um, and neither of those have been recognized by the ancients. So the, the numbers they're using are different. Um, but the other thing is the understanding of what these numbers are, um, th they have to be used in a particular way. They have to be understood in a way that is appropriate to what they are. Uh, one of the attributes of beauty is due proportion. 
So it's not just any proportion. It has to be appropriate to what it is. So to have an octagonal design around a cross, for example, which is what Raphael, the uh, Italian artist, did, who was working in the early 1500s, he placed the figures in an octagonal shape around Christ in, in something called the Mons Crucifixion, which is in the National Gallery in London. And um, he did so uh, because eight is appropriate to Christ. And so he believed that in doing that, not that he was Im embedding this secret code, which is how a lot of people treat it now. It's this sort of mystical secret language that only the initiated know, which is right. really esoteric, esoteric which used to be called Gnosticism. Uh -huh. th 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 this is secret knowledge that only the initiated right. are aware of. That isn't what it, this was about. He believed he was revealing something, that even those who d didn't notice the octagon mm -hmm. and didn't know what it means necessarily, by conforming to that appropriate proportion, he is enhancing the, na the beauty of the painting so that the truth that he is representing is revealed in a more naturally acceptable way to mm. us, so that we will respond naturally to it, even if we don't know the numbers. Um, and when people start to get into esoteric stuff, that's the opposite. of Christianity is public. It's a public religion. It's not, there aren't any initiated who know more than the rest of us. Everybody has equal access to the fruits of the religion. Yeah, um, and now it's, that's not to say that it isn't possible to know more about it. You know, some people know more about it than others, but in principle, it's all open to everybody. Hmm. Any final thoughts on the mathematics of beauty for today's conversation? Well, I just will add one little thing. That it's an appendix in my book, The Way of Beauty. A little story um, that I I loved this when I read it. So. <clears throat> there is this Pythagoras had this um, special relationship and he arranged things in something called the Tetractus. And so the numbers one, two, three, four, the first four numbers, they add up to ten, which he thought was significant. They describe actually musical harmony. The ratios one to two, two to three, and three to four are the lengths of string of the fundamental harmonies of the. Um, the octave, the perfect fifth, and the perfect fourth. And so he just thought within, or the Pythagoreans uh, thought that within this uh, arrangement, one over two over three over four, which you can arrange in a triangular arrangement, um, <clears throat> you have the, the whole key to musical harmony, to the order of the cosmos. It became a sort of secret sign for them. Uh, the tetractus, four, four strings. Now, um, move forward to uh, the early 1960s and particle physics. They discovered eight um, subatomic particles. I think they were quarks, the smallest sort of particle. Um, <clears throat> now, when they described these, they would plot them by their properties. You, know, you have a vertical axis and a horizontal axis, and, and when they would plot one property against another and each quark had these two properties, but they would be in different amounts. So they would all be in a, in a single point on uh, eight points on, between these axes. And they found that the 
pattern of these eight points looked like a triangle with the apex missing. Now, there was no hypothesis in existence that there should be a ninth quark. Um, nobody had suggested that there ought to be. But when they looked at that arrangement of the quarks, describing it mathematically, somebody said, well, it looks as though there should be one there. And now, why does it look as though it should? The answer is that there's nothing in physics that says it should be. It's because as human beings, we look at that pattern, we believe instinctively and intuitively that order um, in, can be, it, it describes the underlying principle of the cosmos, of the universe, and therefore of atoms and quarks as well. And so, um, it looks as though there should be something there. Hmm. So somebody called Murray Gell-Mann set out to find the ninth quark. And he just said, well, if it exists, it's going to have this, these two properties measured in these magnitudes because then it'll sit on the apex of this triangle. And sure enough, he found it. Hmm. Now, the, he was just assuming that the, the world is ordered and symmetrical. Um, now, in that, he, was, he had a connection with the ancient Greeks. Furthermore, what he created was this Pythagorean pattern of the Tetractis, which the ancient Greeks had observed in the looking at the cosmos and, and musical harmony, and it seems is right there at the, at the heart of the atom as well, yeah. the same fundamental pattern of the Tetractis. Now, what that proves, I'm not really very sure, except I just thought this is a, a beautiful parallel to show how modern science can enhance, I think, our sense of the symmetry and the, and the beauty of the world around us. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. For more information, go to thewayofbeauty.org and if you want to buy the book, go to amazon.com.
You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. For more information, go to thewayofbeauty.org. And if you want to buy the book, go to amazon.com.